This is Caught Red-Handed, episode 26. So welcome to the Caught Red-Handed podcast, coming to you from Brooklyn, Boston, and Detroit. I'm Lisa Butterworth, and I'm a henna artist based in Brooklyn. And I'm Jempa Konchak. I'm a tattooer and multidisciplinary artist based in Boston. And I'm Monique in Metro Detroit, and I'm a henna artist, and I make beautiful things for busy people. Thanks. So um, we hope everyone listening enjoyed episode 25, which dropped last week. We were thrilled to see the positive response on social media, as well as a lot of new followers. And um, we're now on Spotify, iTunes, and all the other podcast apps. Please support us there by liking, following, and or subscribing. We'd also greatly appreciate any reviews. We love hearing from you, and we want to know what's working and what isn't. So this is the second podcast in the series about us three and our travels in Morocco. These are just our baby steps to kind of work, ease our way back into the podcast. And today it's me and Monique grilling Jen about his travels and all things Moroccan henna. So let's get into it. Monique, do you want to start? Sure. Um, my first question is, Were you? did you already identify as a henna artist the first time that you visited Morocco? And then can you elaborate a little bit about your experiences, the views of artists in general in Morocco, and then tell us about some experiences with people there when you visited? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I had been working with henna in varying capacities for, let me think, so I went to Morocco in, I want to say 2011 for the first time. Um, and I started working with henna in 1997, so it was a long time. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, uh, the, the coolest thing about going to Morocco as an artist was that, uh, I found that artists are treated very differently than they are here in the States, at least from my experiences. Um, people were really excited when they found out that I was some type of artist and I met so many other kinds of artists too, while I was, especially in Marrakesh. Um, it's just, I mean, the place is crawling with art and artists really. Yeah. And so that was so different from what I'm used to here. I bet what, from what we're all used to really, um, you know, they're, you don't expect to really meet all that many people who identify as some type of artist when you're, out and about here in the States. But in Morocco, it's like, you know, it's fish in a barrel. Everybody's some type of artist. It's really cool. And the, the coolest thing about that is that it felt like there was something respectable about being an artist. Like here, I feel like we're very often looked down upon, you know, they say, get a real job or whatever they say to us. Um, but that was not my experience in Morocco at all. Art is a real job in Morocco and lots of different kinds. So it was just a completely different shift. And uh, yeah, to feel like I'm in this place where uh, what I do is seen as valuable and interesting and essential. It was really amazing. 
That sounds wonderful. I just, I wanted to look back on a a question that Jen asked um, that relates to meeting people and, and sharing moments. And I'm wondering if you have any that, that relate to being an artist or being there in the city or in your travels where you had a moment that you wanted to share. I mean, yeah. So like I said, I met so many different kinds of artists and craftspeople while I was there. Um, The two people who stand out to me the most are um, Fatima, who is a henna artist, um, and Fauzi, who is a jeweler. Um, And Fatima is somebody, I think that she is the henna artist in Morocco who I feel I developed the closest relationship with. I spent a lot of time with her both times I was there. Um, And it's pretty amazing, at least in Marrakesh, uh, there's this this sort of thing that happens that like word travels in unexpected ways. And so the first time I was there, uh, I was there with Rafat Bahar, actually a henna artist from the UK, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, and somebody told somebody who told somebody else that these two henna artists were visiting from America and the UK. And it was sort of like people started to come out of the woodwork. And so <laughs> these henna artists started popping up and saying, oh, I want to meet the henna artists from America or whatever, you know? I don't know who told them we were there. It just sort of happened. And so Fatima was one of those people. She just showed up one day and she said, oh, I'm a henna artist too. And we said, oh, wow, okay. And so we spent the day just, you know, just putting henna on each other, watching her demonstrate different things. It was just this whole big conversation for the whole day and into the evening that first time. And so that was, it was pretty cool how things just happen. And this is really like, that's my experience of Morocco generally, is that there's some kind of, I don't know what it even is. I don't know how it could be uh, deciphered or figured out as far as how this stuff happens. But these little things happen, word travels, people hear stuff, people talk to each other. And it's like there's this very organic and sort of magical way that people just meet each other Um, because somebody said something to somebody else and they said, oh, okay, I'll go find them, you know? It's very different than it is here. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that that happened with Fatima and then I uh, spent a lot more time with her the following trip, which I think was the year after or maybe two years after the first one. and I'm hoping that we can spend some time with her when we're in Morocco from Mektoub because she's, yeah. I consider her an important artistic influence. So I hope that everybody will get to meet her and learn from her. Mm-hmm. And then um, Fauzi, the jeweler, is another person who is just, he's like, he's sort of like a fixture in Marrakesh. So like, he's... He's elderly. He must be in his 70s. Um, And he's had his jewelry shop for, I believe, his whole life. I'm pretty sure it was his family shop. Uh, And this is a guy who he collects jewelry. He makes jewelry. He sells jewelry. And um, he has one house to live in and another house that's full of jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) He has so much of it that he has no place to put it. Life goals. Yeah, right. I know. For real. But uh, he has his shop in the Dyer's Souk area of Marrakesh. And 
I think I can remember how to get there. I hope I can the next time I am back in the city. But even if you can't remember, you can just say, hey, where's Fauzi? And somebody will say, oh, come on, because everybody knows him. Um, he's just one of these sort of like these people who is a fixture in the community for a bunch of reasons. I mean, first of all, because he's an amazing and respected artist and everybody knows what he does and really... Um, I think there's a big sense of pride in, in Fauzi's work locally because he's become kind of a big name. He's had work in Vogue, you know? I mean, he's, yeah. And he's just regular old Fauzi in Marrakesh, you know? Um, but he also does a lot for the community. He serves a big meal every Friday night to whoever wants it. He does a whole bunch of stuff. So I spent a little time with him just watching him make stuff. He does primarily like... Um, like assemblage pieces. So there's a huge variety of amazing old components from all of the jewelry that has been worn in the region of Morocco in Marrakesh for, you know, centuries. And so he uses these pieces and puts together these stunning pieces of jewelry that he makes, necklaces and bracelets and things. And yeah, just watching him work and listening to him talk about his process and seeing how well it's received and how much people really have respect for him was really amazing. You mentioned Marrakesh. Did you mostly stay there or did you move about the country when you've been? Marrakesh was really my home base. Um, I've also been to Essaouira, uh, but other than that, I feel like I could stay in Marrakesh forever <laughs> and be very happy there because I love it so much. I never want to leave, um, but I would like to visit some other parts of the country at some point. I mean, it's a whole country worth. Yeah. What's on your bucket list of places to go? Well, I really want to go further south toward like the edge of the Sahara. I would love to go to Gilmim. I would love to go way down to Tantan. I don't know that there's much there. I just would like to go <laughs> and see what it's like. Um, there's then another city. What is it called? Oh, I can't remember now. Just is a it? little bit. Oh, where's is that? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little south of Marrakesh. And then, I mean, Fez is considered the cultural capital. So I would love to go there as well. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. North well, and south. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Jen, you and I bonded over Moroccan henna like 20 something years ago, but I never really learned how you got to know about Moroccan henna or what made you interested in it. Can you, hmm. can you tell me? That's an interesting question because I don't know if I know. <laughs> I mean, this is so <laughs> long ago. Yeah. Um, well, especially back then uh, among henna artists there among American henna artists anyway, and, and European, I suppose as well. Mm -hmm. um, there was still this sense that there was a lot that we didn't know about yet in terms of what was going on in the rest of the world, what henna artists were doing. Uh, and I felt like there was this continuous search for, oh, what does this group of people do? What does that group of people do? What do the designs look like here? What do they look like there? And so I think that learning about what happened in Morocco was just a part of that. Um, and I mean, it was so different. You remember, it was so different than it is now. Like you couldn't just pull up a thousand images of Moroccan henna on Google like you can today. You could yeah. pull up a few, 
but yeah. it was like it felt much different. It was like you're hunting for something. Yeah, there was no YouTube. There wasn't even Google back then. Yeah, we there had was like Jeeves or something. Ask Jeeves, right? God or Alta Alta Vista. <laughs> yeah. So, I think that. Um, yeah, it was just one of those things I was curious about. And because Moroccan henna is so different from a lot of the other styles of henna that are being used in the world, um, it stuck out to me, definitely, as something mm. that was interesting to me. And then, you know, I mean, once you and I started talking about it and and really I felt like, um, and I'm sure you agree, I felt like we were sort of on the vanguard of something because a lot of people either didn't like Moroccan style designs very much or just didn't understand them or just there was some feeling that they just weren't as interesting or popular. Yeah, like it was lesser somehow. Right. And so that just makes me more interested. <laughs> <laughs> the outsider. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when, when something, when you know something is totally fascinating, but other people don't know it yet because they don't quite understand it then it makes you dig in more you know yeah and and how do you how do you think or maybe you can tell from your conversations with Fatima but what did they um like what did they love about being henna artists or what do they love about henna do they really conceive of it that way you know that's a good question I don't know you know it's a. Uh, it's very different. It's different in some ways and the same in others. It's different in that, from here to there, I mean, it's different in that uh, henna's every day in Morocco, whereas it's a little more special or unusual here. Uh, yeah. And while it is associated with special occasions in Morocco, it's also just a because I felt like it thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, I get the feeling that in Morocco, it's just something that we do. It's just always been there, always will be there. And um, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the same, uh, like, it's not something that's seen as super unique. No. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but this is funny. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of the time, uh, when you meet people with henna on their hands and you ask for a photo, they're like a little bit flabbergasted. They're like, what do you mean? You want to take a picture of the henna? What? It's so silly to them because to yeah. them, it's like whatever. But to us, yeah. it's a fascinating, special thing. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. It just shows that difference in attitude. And it doesn't mean it's not special to them. It's just a normal thing to them. Yeah. So, um, I think the relationship with it culturally is different for that reason. It's something that's always there, which means you relate to it differently. And it's a profession and it's a thing that you do, but um, it's another artist's job in a sea of artists. I think anyway, I mean, that's kind of what yeah, it felt. I get what you're saying. So do you think, think Oh. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Mike. Well, I was just thinking about this, this idea of it being every day and, and um, the conversation around artistry and it's somebody's job. What does that job look like? Do you have any 
knowledge of that, like, what does it look like in the ground? When I show up for an event, I bring everything, right? I bring the lights I need. I bring the henna. I bring all the stuff. What does it look like when a, a henna artist shows up for her or his job in Morocco? And is it even her or his? Is it is it a purview of one, one group of people? Yeah. Um, so it's it's a little different or it used to be a little different than here. And like we talk about this in the book and in other places, it used to be that the henna artist just showed up with a syringe and whoever she was working for brought her everything she needed and she made the henna right then and there and just put it in the syringe and got to work. Um, this also important to note that this is uh, like house calls. Henna artists, at least professional ones in Morocco, primarily do house calls. Um, they don't, uh, at least didn't used to be doing like events, outdoor events or other kinds of things that American or European henna artists do. It's just some family member says, hey, let's have some henna done. Somebody calls the local henna artist or sends for her and she shows up. It's uh, a little more old fashioned in that way. So yeah, that's how it used to be. Um, but I know that that is changing as Moroccan henna artists get uh, a little bit more uh, process oriented, like they like bringing their own henna paste now because they made it rather than having to, you know, work with whatever is given to them. Um, and the tools also, I mean, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but the tools may be changing as well. A lot of artists still use the syringe, but um, Fatima switched to using a Jacquard bottle while I was in Morocco because I had one with me and she picked it up and she was like, what is this? This is amazing. She was like immediately obsessed with it. Wouldn't put it down. And so I was, you know, I gave her whatever I had and she was able to get some more, but she likes it way better than the syringe. And that's just her preference as an artist. You know, it wasn't anything I did. She just picked it up and said, oh, I like this tool. So it's changing a little bit now, I'm sure. That's such a sweet little old-fashioned exchange of of how folk art works versus yeah. like Googling something and trying to figure it out. Like it feels very, like you mentioned the word organic and the, the way that things happen there. Somebody mm -hmm. says something to somebody and then it, it just, it follows. So I think, I think that's a lovely little moment. Yeah, yeah. Did that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, it's kind of an amorphous question. So the yeah. answer is, you know, it's it's kind of amorphous. What did they think of you being a henna artist? Um, people were mostly surprised and amazed and pretty excited because oh, cool. they didn't, they didn't, at least a lot of people that I talked to, um, didn't think that a lot of people other than Moroccans knew anything about henna. Um especially when I was doing Moroccan style design work with them, they were quite surprised that I knew how to do it. <laughs> and they responded have, positively to it, definitely. That must have blown their mind. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So um, I remember you saying something about like a part of the souk or witch's shop. Can you explain that? I feel like we talked about it, but I can't remember the whole yeah. story. Okay, so this was on my first trip to Morocco. Um, and I was there with with Rifat as well as our friend Sarah Corbett, uh, mm -hmm. 
who helps to run one of the henna cafes in Marrakesh. And uh, in that typical way, somebody told somebody told somebody and got a message to Sarah that there was a henna artist who wanted to meet us. And she worked, uh, she, she sold clothes, that was her like day job, in a specific part of the souk, which um, I was told that foreigners were not allowed in this part of the souk. And I, we were like, well, okay, I don't know. But we had an invitation. And so, uh, you know, we went to find her and the souk in Marrakesh I mean, all of Marrakesh is a maze, but the souk is its own kind of maze. And it's just tunnels and doorways and archways and narrow alleyways. And uh, so we went down some paths and then there's a little tiny doorway. Uh, and that was apparently leading into this part of the souk. And there are two guys like standing on either side of the doorway, like guards, which is to make sure that tourists don't just wander through because they're you know, not allowed or whatever. But we said, look, we've got an invitation from a lady who works in here. You're gonna let us through? And at first they were like very, they didn't want to, they still really didn't want to. And they were like, no, 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 no way. Get out of here. You can't come in here, blah, blah, blah. And after some insistence, they relented and allowed us in and um, it's, it was amazing. So what I was told, uh, and maybe Lisa, you can talk about this a bit too, but you know, uh, there's a lot of folk magic still practiced in Morocco and uh, different things are needed for different uh, rituals or, you know, whatever they need to do. And what I was told was that a lot of what was being sold in this part, particular part of the souk was specifically those ingredients. And it was wild. It was like um, a lot of animal parts, a lot of animal heads. There were like little piles of whole birds with a little string tied around the wings to keep them just tied up yeah. like this, like in a little stack. <laughs> there were whole heads of all kinds of like gazelles and just all kinds of bizarre African animals. There were horns, hooves, teeth, claws, whatever you needed, you name it. It was <laughs> wild. It was crazy. And I didn't dare take any pictures because they would have kicked me out of there so fast. <laughs> but then we went um, to meet with this woman who just mixed up a batch of henna in a tea glass and threw it in her syringe and started putting it on one of our friend's hands who was with us. And she was a really nice lady and she just wanted to hang out and show us what she did. She served us mint tea out of the dirtiest glass I've ever drank tea out of and it was fine and delicious. <laughs> hot water will kill everything. Yeah, hot water. <laughs> so was she a witch? I don't know. I mean, there was no, she didn't speak any French. So mm. I couldn't communicate with her directly. Um, some people who were with us knew a little bit of Moroccan Arabic, but it was a lot of pantomime and a lot of pointing, all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, so I couldn't ask her that much. But oh, God. There's the, there's the shared language of an artistic process that everybody knows how to do. So yeah, that was oh, how it so worked. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Do you think you could find that place again? 
I don't think I could. It was such a <laughs> maze to get there, but I'm sure if you ask the right person, they would know. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference between the souk and the old city or the Medina, I guess you call it? Um, like, how do you describe that to people who don't? Have never well, been? to me, it actually all kind of feels the same, even though it's not like, I mean, from what I'm aware, and Monique, you talked about this a bit as well, like the souk are specific air market areas within the old city. Um, and some of them close up at night, like they actually have a gate. Um, yeah, which I didn't know until Monique talked about it in the last episode. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'd be curious I mean, to explore that idea a little bit more to see if we can discover the difference while we're there. But when you see everything yeah. from above, it's just this warren that has right. all these different kind of mattings and coverings and things, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it, and it just seems cobbled together. It feels that way when you're in it. You don't feel like, oh, now I'm in the souk. Oh, now I'm not in the souk. It kind of all feels right. like Although right. there are specific areas that feel maybe a little more densely packed than others mm -hmm. or something like that. That was how it felt yeah. to me. Or different it's kinds part. of things. Um, like, yeah. there's, you know, the there's also the whole part of the city where they make all this stuff to sell. In the right, city. right, exactly. Yeah. But then sometimes, like, they overlap. Like, you'll right. see, like, all these wood shops where they're making the wood and then you walk a little bit further and then they're all the stores selling the stuff that they're making. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's like all kind of interwoven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not like a suburban town where you have like all the residential areas outside and then you have like a, a downtown area. It's just kind of all right. Incorporated it very, it into each feels other. mixed together. Definitely. Yeah. Monique, do you have a question? I do have some questions, actually. Well, I, so one many. of the questions I, well, I do have many. As an interdisciplinary artist and someone who I know is really intrigued by textiles and other things besides henna, can you talk a little bit about, um, I don't know, your impressions and what you saw? Or was it mostly henna focused when you were there, except that you did mention the jeweler? Yeah, it was... Um, it was everything. It was not henna focused. And, um, you know, one thing that, um, one thing that I would like to do the next time I'm there is actually try and spend more time with maybe specific people just watching and learning from them in whatever medium they happen to work in. Like I would love to go, and actually visit the silversmiths there in particular. Um, I don't know what part of the city they're in. Fauzi knows and he could show me, I'm sure. But I had, uh, while I was there, I bought a number of pieces of jewelry that needed repairs, old antique pieces. And I just took them to Fauzi and I said, can you have these repaired? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it takes two days or whatever. And then they send them back. So there's this whole group of artists working in traditional metalsmithing techniques but I don't know where they are. So um, I would definitely like to do more things like that. And um, yeah, well, I mean, while I was there, it's like everything, as you both know, is just, it's so much and it's all around you. And you are just constantly bombarded with creative stimulation so it all mixes together in some type of way and 
one day you find yourself exploring one thing and one day you find yourself exploring another and the days feel like they're they're three days long because you can do so many different things in a small space in the course of one day that it feels like mm -hmm. how did i how did i hang out with this jeweler this morning and this henna artist for lunch and then do this other thing and then go look at these beautiful rugs and then go to this museum it's there's so much so it's just it's a it's a jumble <laughs> What was your, what was that feeling when you first got there? Like the first minute you walked out of the airport, mm. like what hit you? Sights, smells, sounds? I remember the smell actually of the air. The air <laughs> smells very good in Marrakesh. Mm -hmm. Well, at least <laughs> not every place in Marrakesh does it mm -hmm. smell very good. <laughs> but in general, um, I mean, the, you know, the airport is a little bit outside the city, sort of in like a deserty looking place. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know, what is it, like a 20 minute ride into the city from the airport? I think something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I remember stepping out of Manara and smelling the air. And you know how you can smell dust, like desert smell? It has that definitely like like clay desert scent yeah. and a yeah. little bit sweet like flowers or something. It just the air really feels good and smells good there. <laughs> so that was the first thing I noticed and I always will think of that. And what then time of year? Oh sorry. This was gonna ask what time of year you went there? Uh, it was spring for both trips. I think both happened in April. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then as you start to go into the city, uh, I, I was just like, I was like glued to the window of the taxi, just like looking at everything we passed by, because especially <laughs> the first time it was like, my God, I can't believe this is real. I'm here, you know? <laughs> um, and I often tell people like, Morocco in many ways is what you would expect it to be in that it really is this like this wild fantasy of like archways and tile work and like little old men in robes with a cap on and like it's it's like looks like something out of a storybook and it feels like that too it really does <laughs> so all of those yeah. things that like especially when you go to a country or a place, any, any kind of place that kind of has been built up in your mind or you expect it to be a certain way or you have some conception of it, it's not always actually like that. But like Morocco kind of was, at least I yeah. thought so anyway. Yeah, you know you're not in Kansas anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But also you didn't go into it having the illusions that it's going to, you know, it's like palaces everywhere and you know, princesses traipsing, traipsing around in bejeweled gowns. I mean, you knew, like, right. you had a kind of realistic view of it, but it was True. still True. fantastic. And But, you know, to walk through someplace like Jim Fana, the main square in Marrakesh, it, it kind of does feel in some ways like that. I mean, like, there's a man holding a snake over here and there's somebody <laughs> dancing and there's a band playing over there and there's the orange juice seller with the wild outfit over there. And it's like, <laughs> this is all real stuff. Yeah. It's can not, you, it's not touristy. You, no. Can you talk about that cultural stuff a little bit more? Like the music of the place, the smells of the place, the like, and not just the bustle mm. of, um, Palace of Fana, um, like just in general, like what, what, what experiences did you have? Yeah. Um, 
it's it was always so powerful for me to just have these experiences in person of things that I had been experiencing from afar so often. Um, and there's always on every time I go to Morocco, there's a moment when like it just like hits me and everything like I'm like, oh, my God, like you realize, oh, I am here. This is what's happening. And uh on my last trip there, I was with uh, Rebecca Friedner, who I know you know, Lisa. I don't know if you know her. Mm. Um, but uh, we were walking in an area of the souk where there were uh, shops selling musical instruments. And I, I love Ganawa music. Um, I know Lisa does too. And we had, uh, we had Samir on one of our live events who was a Ganawa musician. So maybe some of the listeners know about Ganawa now. But we were walking in that area of the souk and it was pretty quiet. There were not a lot of people. There were not very many tourists there. And we walked past a shop where the shopkeeper was just sitting in his shop. There was nobody else in there. And he was just playing his gimbari because that's what he was doing. And just like hearing it, hearing it for real in real time was that moment that I was like, oh, holy shit. And yeah, I start, I completely, I just, it was like full waterworks because it was so amazing to have that experience in real time. Yeah. So the music is a big part of it and music is everywhere in Morocco. I mean, whether it's being played live or whether it's coming through a really tinny, shitty set of speakers or whatever, it's, I love all of it. And uh, I mean, on the bus to Eswira, we were just listening to Shabi the whole way. It was like, music is everywhere. So I love being immersed in that. And then, yeah, uh, sense of smell is another one. So like I, I said earlier, Marrakesh smells good, but it doesn't smell good everywhere. <laughs> there are, yeah. <laughs> There are plenty of moments yep. when you're smacked in the face with some type of scent that God knows what it is, but it is not nice. But there are just as many moments when it is nice, like um, yeah. that that part of the souk where they sell the fresh herbs and olives and lemons. Mm. It smells incredible. It's just mountains oh of fresh herbs as far as yeah. the eye can see. And it smells amazing. Oh we don't have anything God. like that here. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you're looking forward to when you go to Morocco with Mictube? Well, you know, it's always like, I really, when it comes to traveling, I'm really a creature of habit in that I like to go back to the same place multiple times because then you become an old hand and you kind of just like, you just sink right in when you get there. And there's none of that like, like uh, initial anxiety when mm -hmm. you don't know your way around or you don't know how to do this or how to do that or whatever. So um, of course I'm looking back, looking forward to going to Morocco for the third time now and just really like sinking back into it. And um, you know, I didn't go to too many like museums or cultural sites. I was really just hanging out with people while I was there. So I actually am looking forward to doing some of that because there's so much of the city that I actually still haven't seen. <laughs> it's true. You know, I, was, yeah. I was just being social. I wasn't like doing the museums or anything. So. Is there one thing that you really want to make sure you get to? 
I mean, well, <laughs> the one thing I really want to make sure I get to is to see Belhaj, who is the um, one of the jewelry dealers. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a fun guy to go see. He's got a whole big shop in, uh, in a fondue in the souk. And you'll be like, oh, do you have any of this thing? And he'll be like, yeah, hang on. And he yells to somebody. And then somebody comes back with a bin of it this big, like hundreds yeah. of dump it on the ground and you get to dig through it (laughs) so that's something i'm very much looking forward to i hope he is still in business after all of this nonsense hopefully i keep following what they're what's going on in the souk and they're really trying to keep it going but yeah i mean they don't have rapacious landlords right well i was just gonna say maybe you can speak to this lisa like it seems to me and this is something that ties in with my experience it it really felt like people cared about each other like just people just care about the well-being of the people in the community around them at least that was my experience in marrakesh i mean there were so many people i met who were just oh we do this oh we do that oh we help this oh we help that like fatima buys uniforms for school children who can't afford them because you need a uniform to go to school in morocco yeah and so that's what she does with part of her earnings. And she's just a regular person. She doesn't run a charity. She just does. Yeah. Like I said, Fauzi every Friday serves a huge meal to whoever wants it. There were so many people, just regular people I met who do things like that. Yeah. And so I was hoping that that spirit would sort of keep things going through this terrible year we've all had. Yeah. In that, you know, hopefully there's no landlord being like, well, I'm going to kick you out if you don't pay me. Yeah. You know, it yeah. doesn't seem like it would be like that over there. I feel like it's so steeped in the culture. Like you said, it's just what people do. Like here, we kind of make an act out of charity and volunteering. And, you know, we care for our families and our friends, but charity is like a separate thing. Whereas for them, right. it's kind of, it kind of, it's just my impression. It's like everyone's your family and right. even visitors are your family. Yeah. And they have and, to be taken care of. And the people I spoke with about it, um, mentioned a a religious conviction in that sense they're practicing muslims and they said our religion tells us we have to help people around us and that's why we do this it's very important to them yeah yeah and it doesn't seem like it's a burden either it's just like i don't know this is how you live you wake up go to work you know it's just like a thing right i had an experience coming home where we we were doing a, a diy project And the people that we had met in Morocco said, but then how does the painter have a living if you do the painting? Right? Like if you're going to paint your own walls, how does the, how does the person who does the painting have a living if you're going to do the painting? Yeah. Right. People, people have a job to do whatever that job is and there there's value in that job. So you're taking somebody's work if you do the hands-on thing. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do Zalish because I don't have the skill, but I can paint a wall. And they're like, but that's his job. He paints. You're trying to explain like I enjoy it, and they're like, what? Yeah, no, what? he paints yeah. the walls. It's <laughs> funny. So, what's a typical day in Marrakesh for you as a traveler, Ted? Well. Um, it always starts with tea and some kind of snack. There's always mint tea all the time. <laughs> um, and then 
do you go out for it or do you eat it wherever you're staying? That depends. One or the other. It doesn't matter. Um, And then I kind of just would just start wandering around. Um, Usually I had a little agenda of people I wanted to visit during that day or things I wanted to do with them or whatever. And yeah, I would just wander and take it in. And when you get tired, you stop and drink more tea. (laughs) And uh, your accommodations like like what 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 was the what did you stay in? I I stayed in. Uh, different Riyadhs both times I was there, which, I mean, you both know they're completely amazing. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable the the splendor that is available for, you know, the cost of a Motel 6 in the States. It's wild. Yeah. And it's so nice. They're, I mean, I don't have to explain it too much, but, you know, they're these big, old, traditional Moroccan homes that have been converted into guest houses a lot of them have a courtyard and a roof deck and it's a beautiful place to have as your home base in the city and it's nice because you know marrakesh especially does it gets overwhelming after a number of days there and you kind of just need a little bit of quiet sometimes Mm -hmm. so you hang out on the roof or in the garden or whatever and drink your tea there instead but it's yeah it's always it's like i mean nicer places than any hotel I've ever stayed in in anywhere else that I've been yeah it's amazing you feel like royalty what are some of your favorite foods I always care about the food in places so what are some of the things you like to eat in Morocco well I I, want to hear about it in minute detail I I love Zalouk oh yeah the eggplant you saw what that is yeah I don't remember what else is in it. It's some, is it like it's tomatoes cold, right? and it's cold yeah. eggplant salad? Is it cold? Yeah. 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 It's like yeah. And so and I would always try to order Zalouk wherever I could get it because that's like my favorite. Um, yeah. But even like, I mean, Morocco is very connected, even though it has both Atlantic and Mediterranean coasts, it's very connected to what I think of as Mediterranean cuisine. And so simple things like bread, olives, you know, just basic foods like that are so friggin' good because that's that's where it all comes from, you know? Yeah. So even just the simple street bread that you buy the little loaf for one dirham is unbelievably good tasting. Um yeah. <laughs> which you what, what, what? Which you can get alongside all of the dust and the olives and like yeah. the, yeah yeah why not just yeah totally (laughs) there was one funny time uh when i had had to go out into the new city for an errand Mm -hmm. and uh we stopped for lunch while we were out there just because it was time for lunch and that's where we were and we went to this cafe and they all you know the cafes often have the menu on a little placard out front they're like french style cafes with outdoor seating and um so it had a menu, blah, 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 standard kind of things. And we went inside and the guy said, oh, there's no food today. We're like, what, what do you mean there's no food today? He's like, sorry, no food. You want to order a drink? We're like, yeah, OK. So we order tea. And then he says, hang on, we have chlia. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. What that is either. Chlia. Sarah, who I was with, then she said, oh, it's the pickled meat. Oh, they told me it was pickled. I don't remember lamb. it. 
but it can also be other kinds of pickled meat. It can be pickled beef as well. Okay. And I thought, well, that sounds odd, but sure, you know, let's eat the chlia. <laughs> and he brought us these beautiful little omelets with some chlia in the middle, tiny little egg omelets, and it was so good. <laughs> And oh, now so yeah, as well. If I could find <laughs> it, I'll eat it. There's a they have a chia sandwich at the henna cafe that I like to eat. Wow! Oh, I'm gonna try that. That's that stuff that they sell. I think that's what the meat is. Um, what they sell in the market, and it's like it looks like a big dome of butter with like pieces of beef jerky in it. That might it's be. It's actually it. not butter. It's fat. Yeah, that might be it. <laughs> I you think might be. that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like pickle, but it's like confit or something. It's, maybe that's yeah, what they call they call it preserved pickled. somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not pickled so much. Yeah. Um, there were other amazing <laughs> things that I ate too. Like I got to eat pastilla, which is really special. Mm. Oh God! Yeah, it's like a it's a like a phyllo type of pie, but it's got two layers, and the lower one is usually I think chicken with like herbs and garlic and stuff. And then the upper one is nuts with honey and cinnamon. It's unbelievably good. <laughs> I love a sia. Yeah. Oh God. Oh, and the, we had not a Moroccan food, but strangely enough, uh, the best baba ghanoush I've ever eaten in my life. They were making it in the square. We went out for dinner in the square uh, in, at night and the, they were grilling the eggplant on a, charcoal grill and then just mashing it with a fork in a bowl with a squeeze of lemon juice and some salt and it was oh. unbelievable oh, God. See, it's, it's like those kinds of simple no nonsense few ingredient type of foods that are my favorite thing to eat anywhere and there's so many good ones in morocco and i sound like a like a bon appetit like food um person but it's all about the ingredients like yeah stuff's grown there and it's just i don't know everything like the just eating the one piece of something without any kind of preparation it's delicious yeah it's the food is the quality of the food is incredible so much better than yeah. what we get here so yeah it starts delicious and it ends delicious you know <laughs> indeed indeed monique do you have a question no i just, just can't you can't sell the food yeah, <laughs> we so spent so drooling. much. We, we spent so much talking about it in episode twenty-five, <laughs> and I, so I, I did actually want to. Um, I did maybe want to hear a little bit more about um, travel because mm. that was one of the questions that Lisa asked me. People ask these loaded questions about going to Morocco. Like, did you feel safe? What was what was the travel experience like? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. And my experience uh, with with people, at least here, was the same as yours. People are always shocked, Americans anyway, when you tell them you're going to Morocco. They're like, what do you mean you're going to Morocco? They can't fathom it. Um, but no, I, I found that it was, I, I felt pretty much completely safe and good the whole time um there are always like minor instances on any trip you go on anywhere in the world where like you feel like oh this is a little bit of an uncomfortable situation but it's it's never anything all that serious at least it wasn't in my experience and you quickly learn what to do to to 
get out of it or change the dynamic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in Morocco, the biggest thing was actually just talking to people because, and like, I don't know if I already mentioned this, but Moroccans, at least in my experience, were very willing to relate just as humans. And so you can get anybody talking about their life and their family and what they do and all this stuff. And you'll find there's a common bond and Moroccans are very able to do that even with complete strangers. So it was always those kinds of things that saved me in situations that maybe were like (laughs) feeling a little sketchy. You just keep talking to people and pretty soon you're just two people talking and any kind of weirdness has, has gone away. Um, but yeah, like I found it very safe. I, uh, I appreciate that Moroccans, while they will ask a lot of questions, um, I never felt like people were being rude or prying or anything like that. You know, people want to know, are you married? Do you have kids? Blah, 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 all that stuff. And you answer them and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like anybody's going to give you a hard time with what you tell them. Yeah. They just want to know and then yeah. they'll leave you alone. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I found it very pleasant, very safe. I didn't have any major issue. And I have heard many stories of people getting into a lot of trouble, foreign foreign travelers in particular, getting into a lot of trouble in Morocco. But every one of those stories I've heard, I've been like, why would you do that? Like, people who try to buy drugs and then get mugged like yeah no kidding right (laughs) like like, did you really expect that you were not going to get mugged trying to do that (laughs) all these kinds of weird situations and so I always tell people I'm like look like if I'm going to be careful in New York City I'm going to be careful in Marrakesh it's it's a city and there's some kind of common thread between I think every major city in the world where city city living and city like being street smart in a city isn't that different from one city to another yeah you just keep your head on a swivel yeah you just you just don't act a fool and you're fine (laughs) don't act a fool welcome to Morocco (laughs) (laughs) I asked uh as Monica's but are there some attributes that you found to be kind of universal in Morocco? Like I know you talked about the generosity, the charity. Hmm. And were there any other things that you thought characterized Moroccans? That's a, um, I definitely, I mean, I already talked about those two. Um, How people just want to talk to you, generosity. Yeah. Like I mentioned a minute ago, people are very interested in just learning about you and um and that i found to be pretty much across the board like once people once you start to connect as humans then you're you're like immediately family or you're immediate friends with whoever you meet um there was this one funny situation uh, where, so one of the things that happens is that you walk through the market, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes they will try to like, uh, 
hand you something or put something onto you or which is the thing they're trying to sell you, of course. And so one of the things that they try to do is they try to wrap like a Toreg style turban on your head because they're going to sell you the piece of fabric, right? Mm -hmm. So they try to do this as you're walking past. <laughs> and it was the only time that I actually like, I got a little, I got a little agitated and I kind of like swatted a little bit with my hand. I was like, get, 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 you know, cause he's like getting yeah. up in my face, trying to put this thing on me. And I was like, no, 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 like that. <laughs> and he, and I, you know, you can see I had all of this while I was there and he grabbed me and I was like, oh, great, here we go. <laughs> I just started the fight with a shopkeeper and he grabs me and he says, what is this? He'd never seen tattoos like this before. And then we oh, had this cool. whole conversation about it. So it went from like me like swatting away the obnoxious shopkeeper to like having this new friend who was very curious and interested in me and wanted to tell me about his life too in a matter of seconds. And that's just how it is. <laughs> I love it. Love it. So in general, you felt it was safe and you didn't feel like you were. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, feel, I didn't feel concerned at all. And there were, you know, like after dark, you obviously have to be a little bit more careful than during the day. And um, you have to, one really good piece of advice is that you cannot navigate based on what types of things the shops are selling. You can't be like, take a left at the broom store because after dark, it's not the broom store anymore. It's just a metal door and you don't know what it right, was. Right. All, all, every part of Marrakesh for the most part in the souk looks the same once all the shops have closed. And so you have to be careful that you don't get lost because you're trying to navigate based on those types of landmarks. Be careful you don't get locked in. Yeah. yeah no. <laughs> Mister, you gotta go home. <laughs> so what do you think will be different about traveling with mctube versus what your what your other travel experiences have been well i'm really looking forward to having people with us who've never been to morocco before um i love doing that kind of like showing people around thing in all in all kinds of places not just in morocco so i'm looking forward to that and especially people who probably much like myself the first time I was there are just going to be like oh my god <laughs> you know it's really fun to be like look at this and look at this and look at that other thing to people who are really having fun seeing all of it so yeah. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that um and it'll it'll just be cool to be there in the capacity of an educator too um because I think that, like we mentioned earlier, there's some like hesitation around traveling, especially for a lot of Americans. And so I'm really looking forward to bringing Americans to a place that maybe they're a little bit nervous to go and just show them like, look, it's here and it's fine. And now you're here and now you can do this and you have a better relationship and understanding with the world that we live in, hopefully now having had this experience. So I think that's something that feels important to, to make sure that people get out of it. Do you think that having been to Morocco changed how you do Moroccan henna? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, there were like just mainly because of really working and watching, working alongside and watching Moroccan artists, I, yeah, I, I learned a whole bunch of things just from watching what they did, different ways that they create the motifs, the order in which they work, the, all those little like mechanical things, definitely. Um, because, yeah. you know, you can, it's like, you can learn to play, if you're really dedicated, you can learn to play the violin in a vacuum from watching videos and listening to recordings and blah, blah, blah. But once you see someone else doing it in person, it's a whole different level to mm -hmm. that. There's another thing, more pieces that you get out of it that you couldn't absorb just yourself. So it's yeah. the same with henna, definitely. I mean, there are even motifs that I incorporated into my own work after having seen them firsthand in Morocco. So, so I guess um, that's something that people can look forward to as well, hopefully. Yeah, yeah definitely. Not just learning from us, but learning from artists in Morocco. Right. I mean, you, you know, we've discussed it, that that's a really super important part of this whole deal is that obviously they'll be learning some from us, but I almost, uh, I almost want our voices to, I do want our voices to take a back seat whenever possible to the Moroccan artists that we can connect with while we're there because yeah. they they're the ones who know this stuff backwards and forwards I mean yeah they really are they're the source yeah Monique any questions I, I well my mind wandered a little bit as you were saying about the motifs and the the people and the artists there on the ground knowing things frontwards and backwards. And it, it made me think about that little moment where um, an artist picked up the Jacquard bottle because it was introduced to her. And I'm wondering, I'm just kind of wondering what we'll see that's different or unique or um, how technology has changed that in even a short period of time so i'm i'm that's where my mind wandered as you were were saying that like yeah well and you know what i mean it's gonna be almost 10 years which sounds crazy um i mean i was there in i think 2012 so wow it's been a long time since i was there and yeah. so i'm sure it's gonna be quite different i'm sure that we're gonna see all kinds of stuff that we we're not expecting to see and all kinds of changes and mm -hmm. who knows in some type of way. So it'll be, it'll be fun to contrast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then the impact of um, the pandemic too. I think Monique, you'll probably notice that since you were there before the pandemic and then we'll go after and, you know, and see what the, the result of that is. Mm -hmm. Are we all out of questions? <laughs> No, I am so not out of questions. How are we on time? Okay. <laughs> well, we're in, we're um, a little bit under an hour, but we can, you know, we don't have to stop at an hour even. So we can save some of the conversation for for when we chat with Lisa. We can. Yeah, I mean, if you if you have other questions, let's just go for it. 
I was well. I was curious because you, John, you've traveled to a couple of places mm-hmm. where henna is is a um, an integral part of cultural uh, culture and celebration. And I'm wondering if you had any ways to contrast or compare other travels with your travels in Morocco relative to henna as an artist. Yeah, um, it's a good question and. My experiences, so I was in India uh, this past February, I think, yeah. And, um, you know, my experiences in Morocco and India were so different on many levels. Um, It was, I found it much more difficult to connect with people in India than I did in Morocco. Um, And so I didn't necessarily get to have the same kinds of just casual social interactions with locals Mm -hmm. while I was there. Um, So it was a very different type of experience generally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't spend too much time really seeking out henna people in India. Mm-hmm. We did go to one part of um, one part of Delhi called Lajpat Nagar, where there's like a whole row of henna artists. And the work was beautiful. I mean, I saw them doing it. It was gorgeous, gorgeous work. And these are men, male henna artists. Um, and they have, you know, just their row of sidewalk whatever and you just go and you sit down and you put your hand out and they start working um and we saw them mixing the paste one morning which was cool he had a big bucket and he was mixing a huge amount of green oh, head wow. of paste in it. <laughs> so they do make it themselves they're not using any kind of pre-pack anything that was cool to see um but i think that in some ways um I don't know how to characterize it, but henna as a as a as a thing is engaged with a bit differently in India than it is in Morocco. Um, I almost feel like like the the history or the older history of henna in Morocco feels more uh, accessible than it does in India because India is so vast and so full of different kinds of people and different kinds of traditions. And they've just, you know, this group takes over and then that group takes over. And then this does, it's like one thing after another for millennia. Right. Mm -hmm. And Morocco, I I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think that from a historical and cultural standpoint, I don't think that Morocco is quite as diverse. And I don't think that it's had quite as many like wild shifts in terms Mm of kind of who's running the place. It's had its share, but Mm -hmm. India has just been, you know, tossed back and forth between so many different kinds of people for so many. It's a bigger, bigger country, more languages. Right. So yeah, that older stuff or the roots of the thing feel much more distant in India 
than they do in Morocco. Yeah, I, the landmass is smaller. The population is less dense. The and stylistically, you see differences between north and south, but you don't see necessarily those stylistic differences from district to district, right? Well, you can. You definitely can, um, and more so in the past than in the present. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I often point out about henna in India is that it's very closely linked to the fashion industry, which is as busy and bustling as Paris or New York. Mm Every, you know, every season, something new is in fashion. And the same applies to henna in India. There's this mad drive for something new, something different. And in Morocco, I think that while there is definitely quite a lot of interest in things that are new and different, there's a different engagement with with the past. And um, Morocco obviously has a has a busy fashion industry, too. But there's something about henna that is really, really still strongly rooted in um, in a tradition in Morocco that stretches back and back and back. And in India, it's, it's uh, sort of morphed into something that's its own brand new thing now, almost in mm-hmm. a way, if that makes sense. Maybe you can clarify this for me. My impression, I've never been to India, is that henna is more public. So, you know, you have these big groups of people mm-hmm. doing it, you know, like mm-hmm. a whole line of them doing it in a, in a market. You have beauty salons there that do mm-hmm. it. Yes. And Morocco, it's like very family oriented. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing to point out. Like, I wonder if because so many of these traditions are still held within families in Moroccan culture, if that's Mm -hmm. why uh, it seems like a little more of an unbroken chain. And of course, I'm not saying that there aren't Indian families with similar traditions. I know for a fact that there are, but it has this counterpart. It has the the private family tradition in addition to its public presence, which is quite strong in India. Yeah. I was just thinking about the idea of the intimacy of henna and that, And like you, you public facing, yes, as far as like a big celebration at a wedding, for example, Mm -hmm. in India. But then in Morocco, if you're a Muslim woman, woman, you're you're covering when you go out. And so it's only in the confines of your home that a lot of times the henna is really visible. Yes. Yeah, that could be part of it. Um, There's quite a tradition of. Uh, of covering in India as well, both in Hindu and Muslim communities. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, public versus private feels like definitely an important distinction to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I remember hearing about how there are schools for learning henna in India mm-hmm. and they have beauty salons that just have like their whole crew of henna artists and and you know, I you know, granted, I haven't been to Marrakesh, and I haven't really traveled deeply into Morocco in a while. But I never saw that when I was there. It was just like you had to know somebody 
who had their family artist or they had a few different artists and um, it was always done at home. And then the people who did do henna, like out in public, like in the um, Jamal Fana, they were considered kind of like, like unsavory people because they were doing this in public. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And that was what I experienced and was told as well. Um, and something interesting to note is that when I was speaking with uh, different people in Marrakesh, um, I met a lot of women who were really interested in henna and wanted to meet myself and Rufat because they told us that Moroccan henna artists won't tell us how to do this and we really just want to know how to do this <laughs> because there was some sense of a protective quality like this is my job and I'm not going to tell you how to do it uh, and it's no... passed down through your family too right. so it's there's... like a family secret that you're sharing. yeah there's no henna school in Morocco the way that there is in India definitely mm -hmm. and so that was it was interesting to note that people really wanted to know whatever they could learn from whoever they could learn it when people wanted to know how to do it like what I'm just curious about like what the mechanics are thinking back to what I wanted to know when I was beginning <laughs> and the fact that the tools have evolved so much. Right. And so did you, when you were there, what kinds of tools were people using? In Morocco? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, syringes. I saw a lot of syringes. I mean, uh, nobody was using anything else until they picked up our tools, at least to my knowledge. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was all syringe, from what I could tell. Um, and I didn't encounter anything like super noteworthy. Like I would love to meet someone who works in tape resist or something like that. But it's hard to find these people. I saw lots of beautiful henna done in lots of different ways, but it's it's like there's no way to track people down um yeah the most amazing thing was uh myself and rebecca were walking through the square and i saw this woman up ahead of us with gorgeous henna on both hands like beautiful so beautiful and i said rebecca you have to ask her for a photo because it's not considered polite for me as a man to ask a strange woman for a photo or much less even really speak to her un you know, unannounced or, or just out of the blue like that in an, in public. And so Rebecca asked her for a photo, but between us, there was no common language. Um, she spoke no French. We spoke no Arabic. And so like, we were able to like have this little pantomime thing and figure out that yes, the artist did work in Marrakesh, but, that was as far as we could get. There was no way to say, well, who is she? How do we find her? Because it was just, you know, it was two people speaking languages that neither, nobody else understood among them. So it was like, oh man, if only I could have found that henna artist. <laughs> Maybe when we go back, I'll find that person. Yeah, because I would love to know what that person, you know, just, I, it's, it was some of the most beautiful Moroccan henna I've ever seen anywhere in pictures yeah. or, or in person. And so to learn about what that person does would be amazing and to watch her work. Yeah. Well, Jen, thank you so much. It's funny, like when you're friends with someone, you don't hear, you don't sit down and ask them questions for like an hour and a half or whatever about their trips. 
and I think this is the first time I've heard some of these stories. So it's been really interesting uh, listening to you and then also hearing Monique ask her questions, pulling more and more out of you. So really appreciate it. It's your turn next. So <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah. uh, in the hot seat. All right. Uh, well, um, yeah. Um, anything else you want to say before we finish? No, I just want to say thank you. I'm super excited that we'll all be there together and and you'll be there to to show us, you know, through your lens. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll uh, see you in the next podcast. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.